Let us pray. Father, we believe that all Holy Scripture is written for our learning, and so we pray by your Holy Spirit that we would so hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this, your Holy Word, that we would be changed, changed more and more to be like Jesus for the sake of this world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. God is teaching me how to wait. And it's a long teaching because I'm not very good at waiting. I'm actually pretty terrible at waiting. And the world around us is no friend to those who are trying to learn to wait well. Amazon has destroyed waiting. I found myself just the other day on Amazon trying to buy something for about $5. And though it was promised it would arrive to me the next day, I was given this incredible offer that if I found 20 more dollars worth of things to buy that were eligible, it would arrive at 5 p.m. that same day. Well, what did I do? I spent the next hour trying to find things I didn't need to buy to bring it up to the threshold wherein I could get this $5 item by 5 p.m. the same day. I do not know how to wait well. And it's true for most of us. This is why we need Advent. Advent is a season of waiting. We're waiting not just to celebrate the first coming of Jesus at Christmas, but we're really waiting for his second coming, as our collect prayed just a few moments ago. We're in a season of waiting. And in fact, since we're waiting, ultimately as Christians, for the return of the king, isn't every day of our lives... Advent? I mean, this little mini season focuses on waiting, and yet every moment of every day of our lives is a season of waiting. Learning to wait well. See, there's hope and there's gospel for those who wish to learn to wait well. And in fact, if you turn with me to Exodus chapter 3, this I think is one of the greatest examples of hope and good news for those who wait. If we look at Exodus chapter 3 together, we actually see a picture of waiting well and the hope that is behind waiting well. Moses in Exodus 3 has already been waiting for 40 years in Midian, and God is about to answer his prayers. And yet, what comes on the back end of God answering his prayers? Another 40 years of waiting in the desert. And so Exodus chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, says this, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mount of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a fiery flame in the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, but was not consumed. And he said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not Burned, And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him from out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And God said, do not come near. Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. 
And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I've heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. And I know their suffering. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here, looking at Exodus 3, we find good news for those who are waiting. And here's the good news for those who are waiting. God knows your pain. When you are in a season of waiting, God knows your pain. But more than just knowing your pain, Exodus 3 tells us that God knows his people. He knows you and I. He knows what we're made of. He knows what he's dealing with with us. He's not surprised by the people he's got to deal with. He knows our pain and he knows his people. But even more than just knowing our pain and knowing his people, God knows his promises. He has not forgotten them. We may forget God's promises, but God knows his promises. See, the good news for those who wait is that God knows our pain. Look at verse 7. Hear those words from verse 7. Oh, these are the most comforting of words to someone who is in pain. I have surely seen your affliction. I've heard your cry. I know your suffering. I mean, this is what a person in deep, lasting, ongoing pain really needs to hear is I see you. Let me compare that with what we don't need when we're going through pain. Here's what's not helpful when we're going through pain. Extended seasons of real pain. You don't need sentimentality. That's really not helpful. What's really not helpful is Christian sentimentality. A sense of sentimentality that says, oh, let's have an artificial sense of joy and happiness that sort of is meant to overcome the pain. Right? An artificial sense of just getting on with things. You know, just, you know, it, it's all going to be okay. Don't worry about it. God has a plan. This kind of Christian sentimentality we layer on top of pain. It's not helpful to someone in pain. I mean, we see it right now in our culture. In a culture that is determined to go straight from Black Friday to Christmas and skip Advent altogether, it's all about sentimentality. Right? You will get a sentimental feeling when you hear voices singing, let's be jolly, deck the halls with boughs of holly. Right? Sentimentality. It's singing through the stores. And yet that's not what we need to hear in the midst of our pain. We need to be told we're seen. We're not alone in the dark, that we're heard and that we're known. You know, it's interesting, those number of years that our second oldest daughter was in children's hospital again and again, on and off, every month. I got a phone call once at two in the morning. Remember back in the days when you'd actually answer your phone when you didn't know the number? Remember that there, some of you in the room are like younger people, like that doesn't happen. Well, you, we used to actually answer your phone whenever it rang. Nowadays, I'm like, I don't know that number and I'm never going to answer it. But this phone rang at two in the morning in the hospital. She's about eight years old. She's in, in, in the hospital with stuff took up to her and the rest, as she always would be. And, and on the, end of the, the other end of the phone is my bishop. 
Father Paul, this is Bishop Don Harvey calling. Now, Bishop Don was my brand new bishop. We had just come into this new thing called the Anglican Church in North America. He was our new bishop. I'd never actually met him face to face. He called me because we had put on Facebook that Sophie was going into the hospital, as we always did. Someone had found this out, called the bishop. The bishop had called me two in the morning. I thought I was in trouble. That's why bishops normally phone you. And so... I said, I, said, I said, Bishop Don, why are you phoning me? He said, well, I hear your daughter's in the hospital. I hear this happens a lot. And I want to pray with your daughter. And I was just overwhelmed. And there was a pause. And then he said, Father, why are you still on the phone? I said I was calling to, call, talk, to pray with your daughter. Put your daughter on the phone. And I said to my eight-year-old, uh, your bishop wants to pray for you. It was overwhelming. But here's the amazing thing. He prayed It meant so much. She still remained hooked up to machines. We still didn't know what was going on. But the incredible comfort of knowing that he knew. Knowing that we weren't alone. That someone knew what we were going through. And here's the thing. That incredible sense of overwhelming sense of being comforted by someone else knowing our pain. That was just a human being. He's just a man. It's just another human being knowing our pain. Can you imagine the living God knowing your pain intricately and personally? The living God saying, I see your pain. I hear your cry. I know your suffering. This is the promise for those who wait. You know, it's the wonder of the incarnation, which we celebrate just in a week's time. You know, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The wonder of the incarnation of God becoming flesh, is not that God, not only that God knows your pain, but God knows what it is to suffer pain. It's not just that God knows your pain, but he knows what it is to suffer pain. Have you been hungry? So has he. Have you been weak? So has your God. Have you been lonely and abandoned and betrayed? So has he. Have you been dying? So has your God. This is the wonder of the incarnation. This is what is promised to those who wait, that God knows our pain. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and martyr, as he was dying, preparing for death, in a Nazi concentration camp, the, the day that he was executed, they found a little piece of paper in his pocket and they assumed that it had been written that day by Bonhoeffer. And all it said was, only the suffering of God can help. Knowing that God knows, knowing that God knows what it is to suffer this pain, I have surely seen your affliction. I have heard your cries. I know your suffering. This is the good news for those who wait. God knows your pain, but not just that he knows your pain. He also knows his people. He knows you. He knows who he's dealing with. There's that moment when Moses, in verses 5 and 6, discovers that he's talking with the living God, and he hides his face, we're told. He was afraid to look on God. And that's not surprising. That is a natural reaction and even an appropriate reaction for a human being, sinful, broken as we are, to bump into the living and holy God, right? God shows up in his holiness, and our unholiness is exposed. Our sinfulness is laid bare. 
It's like Peter's first response to Jesus, right? When he's in the boat in Luke 5 and Jesus does a little fishing miracle. And what is Peter's response? He says, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. This is Moses' reaction. But here's what's incredibly encouraging, is what God has said to Moses. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And you think, think, whoa, those are the big heavyweights, right? That's the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But there's another way of seeing it too. Let's remember the stories within scripture of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yes, they were patriarchs, pillars of the faith, but they also had pretty broken family lives. Abraham, just as an example, Abraham who in chapter 12 passes his wife off as his sister in a foreign kingdom in order to avoid being killed, right? Uh, You're not my wife now, you'll be my sister. Thankfully, the Lord protects her, not because of Abraham. And he does it again in chapter 20. Twice he passes off his wife as his sister to a foreign king to save his own skin. And then Isaac, like father, like son, he does the same thing with his wife. Jacob has two wives. He loves the one and he hates the other, and that causes no small amount of problems in that family, and then chooses to love one son above all the other sons in chapter 37, which causes a great storm of oppression and challenge until it's resolved in chapter 50. The point is, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, he's saying, I've dealt with these ones, I can deal with you. The God who can deal with all of them, all that made up Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob can deal with all that makes up you. I'm the God of your father, and I'm your God. Everything you bring to the table, I can deal with. I can work with it. And here's how he works with it. Here's how he works with it. He works with it by consuming it. I love that chapter, verses three and four shows that it's this consuming fire that doesn't consume the bush, right? There's this language of, behold, the bush is burning, but not consumed. You want to say, what, what's the big deal about the bush burning, but not consumed? What kind of party trick is this? Well, think of it this way. There's actually a theological point in this. So God often in scripture appears in fire, right? Mount Sinai, the pillar of fire that leads Israel, right? At night, stands with Israel at night. Uh, The fire of, of tongues of fire that come down on the day of Pentecost. God revealing himself in this fiery form. Why? Because fire purifies. That's why Deuteronomy chapter four says, our God is a consuming fire. Consuming what? Consuming everything that's broken. The fire comes, purifies, right? God is a consuming fire. So then, why the big deal about the fact that the fire is burning but does not consume the bush. We need good theologians like Karl Barth to tell us this, who says the bush is Israel. The bush is the people of God. And God will consume our sin without consuming us. God will consume our sin without consuming us. He will burn up the chaff without burning up the wheat. God is in the business of purifying, sanctifying, correcting as a God of fire, but we will not be burned. We will remain 
This is the promise of what God is doing. He knows the people he's dealing with. He knows Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he knows Moses, and he knows you, and he knows me. You know, I was in northern England just this last week. Uh, the vestry, you'll be very, very thankful for the vestry. The vestry required me to go on retreat. They said, you must go on retreat, or we're going to call the bishop. And I said, I'm going, I'm going. So I went, I went on retreat. The vestry was taking good care of me. They said, go. So I went. I was up in northern England, had a great restful time. But on Sunday, I had to go worship somewhere. So I went and worshiped at one of our Gafcon churches up in north England, a little place called Scarborough, Scarborough by the sea, lovely little place, church plant. These are people who've left the Church of England and are planting new churches in England. So I showed up there and they were so friendly and they're like, hello, I'm Robert and I'm Julia and I'm Christopher. And then this guy comes up and goes, hi, I'm Tom. And I was like, whoa, you're not from here. And he said, no, I'm from Ohio. I'm Tom from Ohio. And I said, well, I'm Paul from Plano. So we started talking at coffee time and it turns out that Tom from Ohio is an orthopedic surgeon. So you know what we were talking about during coffee time. I'm like, wow, I can't wait to introduce you to my wife who shattered her leg earlier this year. And we love orthopedic surgeons because you guys do this incredible job of taking shattered, shattered bones and putting them back together miraculously. And I said to him, here's the point of the story. I said, what you do to me seems impossible. I mean, I look at those x-rays and think, how can you possibly put that back together, that mess of break. And he said, it's so easy. He says, you go in there and you start with the biggest pieces and you put them in place. And then you go to the next largest size pieces and you put them in place. And then you keep working down from the largest to the smallest. Then you get a bit of glue and some titanium and screws. And there you go, you fix the leg. And I said, I know for you, it's easy. For me, it looks impossible. And the point is this, for what looks impossible to us, What looks beyond hope to us in the hands of a skilled surgeon is totally possible. And so it is with us and God. What can look beyond hope, what can look beyond salvageable, what can look impossible, the correction and sanctification of you and I in the hands of a mighty God is totally possible. For us, it seems impossible for him It is an easy thing. For as the angel says to Mary at the Annunciation in Luke chapter one, verse 37, with God, nothing will be impossible. God knows our pain as we wait. And he knows his people. He knows the ones who are waiting. He knows the ones that need the work. But finally, he knows his promises. Look at verse eight. Verse eight, he says, I have come down to deliver. And you say, praise the Lord. He made a promise to come down and deliver. And then just a few chapters later, there he is delivering. He's faithful to his promise with the first exodus. And so it is with Jesus. He promises that he will come. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That he would come and he would deliver us. Not from Pharaoh, but from sin and death itself. He made the promise, and in Jesus Christ, he came. He came down. Jesus was born into this world, lived and died for us, rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. 
And yet, just like Israel had to go into a period of still waiting 40 days in the 40 years in the desert after their deliverance in the first Exodus, so we have to continue waiting in a season after we've gone through this new Exodus. We still wait today. We're waiting for that future glory. You know, the, probably the greatest analogy we often use of this to talk about waiting for the fulfillment of the promises, that the victory is finished, but the promises are still coming, is to think in the terms of the Second World War, the difference between D-Day and VE Day, D-Day, Decision Day, versus VE Day, Victory in Europe, right? D-Day is the date in 1944 when as the Allied forces landed in Normandy, the war was won. I mean, that decisive moment won the war. It was done at that point. It was determined they would win the war from that point on. And yet, it took 11 more months of trench warfare so they arrived at VE Day on May the 8th, 1945, that could declare now victory in Europe. 11 months of still trench fighting to clean up the mess, even though the victory had been won. And this is such a powerful picture of what we live in now, those 11 months. Jesus on the cross has conquered sin and death. The work is complete. The victory is won. D-Day is accomplished. There's no way Jesus loses. And yet we're still now waiting, waiting for his second coming when the full consummation of these promises will come, when finally the pain will be completely put away, where everything wrong in the people of God will be put away, where the promises will finally be realized. See, God has made these promises for us and he's fulfilling his promises. God knows his promises. The question is, do we believe them? And thus we start understanding the purpose of waiting. See, the purpose of these seasons of waiting is in fact a growing of faith within us. Living within the challenge of this age and asking yet again, will we trust God in this? Or will we do what I love to do in seasons of waiting and become frantic and start manipulating outcomes or getting fearful and becoming all melancholic? Instead, could we find faith? For in fact, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2 says that's the whole reason God takes Israel into the desert for 40 years. He says he's 40 years long. This has happened. So I would test your hearts to know what is in them, whether you would obey my commandments. That our, our seasons of waiting are in fact how we grow in faith. Will we see them as such? You know, I close with this that one of the sort of early challenges um, in our marriage, um, really the first sort of big crisis point was when we went to seminary. Um, I was going to Regent College in Vancouver to start seminary. We were totally broke and uh, we were sleeping on my cousin's couch. What a way to provide for my new bride. And we knew that Monica would have to get a job to put me through school for the next three years. And I was working multiple jobs as well. And so we looked on the job board and I mean, I, I was super frantic and found like 50 jobs she could apply for. And she was dutifully applying for them and just kept saying all the way through, I just, I'll do this in faithfulness, I'll apply, but I just don't feel like this is what God's 
got for us. I feel like there's something we're supposed to be waiting for, not be frantic about it, not be fearful. And I was like, yeah, 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 fill out the job applications. And, and she's like, no. And, and then she said, well, maybe I'm actually called to work right at the seminary where you are. Like, I really feel connected here and that there's gonna be a job. I'm like, yeah, 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 there's no job at the seminary. Fill out those job applications. And she's like, one day she points at the front house, front uh, reception at, at, the, uh, at the office at, at the seminary and goes, you know, I really think God is calling me to work there. I'd love to work in there. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no job available there. And a week later, a job posted for that front of office position. Nothing else had panned out. She interviewed, she got the job. She thrived in the job for the next three years. She could take classes for free. I could get a class free per semester. And we got to eat lunch together in the staff room every day more than we could ask or imagine. Now, here's the real miracle. The miracle in itself, I think, is not just that God actually gave that amazing provision, but it's what he did to my heart. Suddenly, in that moment, I learned for the first time as a young Christian that these seasons of waiting are about growing faith. Put away the frantic, frenetic worry. Put away the fear in your seasons of waiting and ask the Lord to build faith because he knows your pain in the waiting and he knows you in the waiting and he knows his promises. This is how we wait well. And I will say that God is fully aware of how much propensity we have to not trust his promises, how much propensity we have to not believe. And so that's why he calls us in here every week. He calls us back to church every week so that we can rehearse again his promises. We can hear the word declaring those promises and then we can come forward and participate in those promises. We can come forward, kneel down and be shown again the promise of God. This, my body broken for you. This, my blood poured out for you. Here are the promises of God. And what do we say together week after week about the promises of God? In the midst of our waiting, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. This is how we wait. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.